everyone's pretty excited about a lot of things in AI. <laughs> I want to throw cold water on too much. I think a lot of the companies making headlines and getting a bunch of funding at this point are probably going to wash out. But that's the similar thing as like the first dot com, like boom, right? Essentially, you had a lot of companies there that were basically the first derivative of going onto the internet and then washing out. And some of the things that ultimately became much more pivotal in the world in terms of the way Amazon eventually evolved and the way that we eventually got different things like Uber, Airbnb, et cetera. I think that many of the AI companies that we will look back on years from now as pivotal will be the ones that have much more intersection with the real world. So things in terms of AI for drug discovery, AI for materials design. Welcome to Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Shahid Durrani. Today we have with us James Wang. James is a general partner at Creative Ventures. He brings experience as an investor from Bridgewater Associates, worked briefly at Google X, and was active in the AI ecosystem in startups and as a subject matter expert reviewer for various publications. Welcome to our show, James. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. My pleasure, my friend, my pleasure. So can you share your journey from working at Google X and now being a partner with Creative Ventures and then also share what makes Creative Ventures unique? Yeah, totally. I think the funny thing about venture capital in particular is most people who I know who are in it and are pretty good at it tend not to come at it wanting to get into it. So I think most people who end up in venture capital and doing well end up doing something else first and then falling into it. So my particular journey was that I had gotten pretty involved in the startup ecosystem after I left Bridgewater. A uh, big reason why I wanted to do so at the time was because I saw so many interesting things happening in technology and AI and computing in a lot of these different areas. And I knew that from a hedge fund perspective, it wasn't something that I could get close to while there. So that was a big reason why I wanted to leave and go. Now, in terms of the actual mechanics of how I ended up there, uh, basically, a classmate of mine <laughs> during my MBA at Berkeley went off and wanted to do a venture capital firm. I told him it's a bad idea. He did it anyway with a cl another classmate of mine. And eventually they pulled me in because uh, they basically said, yeah, you're right. It's hard. And it's, that's the beginning of the history. And things evolved from there. We ended up doing quite well in terms of it. And what it eventually evolved into was Creative Ventures, so an early stage deep tech venture fund where we are different than most because we specialize within areas of technology that are very frontier. Typically, it's AI, synthetic biology, and advanced materials in terms of these areas. And all of our 
team members tend to have both technical expertise and investment expertise. Like you mentioned for me, I had that experience at Bridgewater Associates. I had actually had quite a bit of experience at that point working with different startups and whatnot. But I also had that technical background as well within the AI side, as well as different engineering aspects as well. Hey, can you share an industry that's the most exciting in AI right now? I think everyone's pretty excited about a lot of things in AI. Don't want to throw, <laughs> want to throw cold water on too much. I think a lot of the companies making headlines and getting a bunch of funding at this point are probably going to wash out. But that's the similar thing as like the first dot com, like boom, right? Essentially, you had a lot of companies there that were basically the first derivative of going onto the internet and then washing out. And some of the things that ultimately became much more pivotal in the world in terms of the way Amazon eventually evolved and the way that we eventually got different things like Uber, Airbnb, etc. I think that many of the AI companies that we will look back on years from now as pivotal will be the ones that have much more intersection with the real world. So things in terms of AI for drug discovery, AI for materials design, and it will create a, it'll be interesting because even though we think of chat GPT as revolutionizing everything, right? Where we can see, okay, this is how chat bots and some of these other things, customer service might all be changed. But from a more fundamental level, we can probably see some of the five or 10 years from now, we'll look back and go, all of our drugs, a lot of our materials, the things that make up the, the clothing or everyday things that we use may be affected and touched by AI at that point in the future. And I think that's pretty powerful and pretty exciting. So can you share some lessons that you learned from Bridgewater that you're incorporating into your investing decisions? Yeah. The funny thing is it's like a lot of stuff actually did carry over, which you wouldn't necessarily expect because it is a global macro hedge fund and VC is quite different from that. But a couple of the big things that did carry over was one of our principles for ourselves is that if we can't write it down and we can't explain it ahead of time, we don't actually understand it. So I think differently from many other VCs, we don't walk into pitch meetings with the expectation that the founder will teach us a ton of things about the industry. Our expectation is that we've done thousands of hours of research ahead of time know exactly what we're looking for within each specific industry in each specific area. And basically, it's a matchmaking process where we talk to the company, talk to the founder, figure out, okay, does the technology fit this particular problem area that we're interested in? Does it actually address the problems that we see? And does it actually avoid the pitfalls that we also see in terms of going forward for it? So the way that we see it is, yeah, you have to be able to write down your rules for what you're going to invest in ahead of time so that you're not just walking into a meeting and basically making a decision about whether or not to invest based on how charismatic the entrepreneur is. That is an important factor, mind you. Yeah, just in it terms has of, to as be. You, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. in terms of some of these companies, it's not the only thing, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is the interesting thing about deep tech. It's been, I think, 20 years where we've had a great learning experience for the entrepreneurial community where you can essentially go after companies with software where you can basically pit your own moxie against the market and figure out if you can make it work. Because if the first thing that you do doesn't succeed, you can always 
change some of the code, change your Google AdWords target and go after something else. It's oversimplifying it, obviously, but if you can do that and hit pure entrepreneurial metal against the market. That doesn't really work if you're doing something like synthetic biology or again, the advanced materials thing, or even the semiconductor kind of company, because the thing that you end up with, you can't really pivot from, at least not. So in terms of this, it's much less forgiving if you get it wrong the first time around, which is partially why we put so much emphasis and effort in doing that research ahead of time so that we can pair with founders and help them get around some of that early pitfalls, uh, because you might only have one shot in terms of getting it wrong. And if you get it wrong at that point, that might be the only shot. James, that research that you conduct, that thorough research, research is that for every pitch or is that industry research? or like concept research. That's, totally. That's industry and market research, except we get down to the specifics so that we literally are looking for a company, say, within the diagnostic space for healthcare that reduces healthcare costs that are specifically within these modalities and say medical imaging. And within medical imaging, then the modality is likely either uh, miniaturized MRI, which we haven't really seen from a technical perspective or in terms of ultrasound in this way. So we actually spell it out pretty explicitly. And a lot of that's backed by understanding the market and industry structure. Some of that's understanding what technology is reasonable out there, because we're always happy to be surprised by obviously technology that exceeds our expectations, but there's bounds just dictated by current understanding and physics for some of it. So that's high level how we do it. So that gets me to the next question about humanity's most critical components. How do you see AI playing a role in, in addressing them? Yeah, so I think it's become unpopular at this point because, to be a tech optimist, but I absolutely still am. Because it's, I, I see your expression, but it's, it's just funny, right? Because over time, we went from the exuberance of the 90s and early 2000s for tech basically being able to solve and help everything and a lot of optimism about it to suddenly tech is the big bad guy, right? I understand some of that impulse, but at the same time, I think it's too much to throw away the excitement about technology because between AI and everything else, look, we got a lot of problems in our current world, society, et cetera. We're seeing a lot of the conflicts and everything. We're seeing all these different things. But we're also seeing some pretty fundamental problems in terms of our populations are aging. In order to not actually have that create a lot of societal strife, which actually it already is, and create issues in terms of lower standards of living, unhappiness, like job losses, et cetera, we have to deal with the fact that those things are causing labor shortages, which causes issues in terms of productivities of society. We have to deal with the fact that they've created a lot of enormous healthcare costs all across the board. And we have to deal with the fact that climate change and a lot of these things are still happening. AI can actually address many pieces of all of them in terms of healthcare costs. There's a lot of different diagnostic tools and drug discovery things that obviously we've talked about a little bit. In terms of labor shortages, that can be seen directly, though I would argue that the challenge of addressing labor shortages with AI is not as simple as most people think, but at least people can conceptually understand how that works. And then with climate change and whatnot, we're already seeing lots of exciting things with merging AI with 
different materials, designs, and ways of actually reducing the resources needed and potentially getting us to a more carbon neutral future as well. So AI can actually be implied in all of these different areas. So we're excited about a lot of these technologies coming up. And again, mm. look, I'm a tech optimist in terms of this. Frankly speaking, I don't really see in any of these big areas that, again, are causing societal strife any real way that politicians or policy or whatnot are really going to solve them. And even for climate change, again, maybe unpopular opinion, though I think a well-backed one for this one, even for climate change, a big part of that was like solar panels and renewable energy getting better and renewables becoming more viable. Some of that had obviously government subsidies and other things thrown behind it before, but it wasn't the kind of all of government uh, efforts and policy and regulation that ultimately got us to a better climate trajectory. It was actually just technology, solar panels and manufacturing from China. Speaking of shortages, like labor shortages, do you see any kind of companies or innovations that are standing out to deal with that? Yeah, we have a particular company ourselves that I think is a popular one that everyone talks about, which is a pizza-making robot. It is a... Oh, um, I've seen it, that, it I think. Yeah, it piloted at Domino's in Germany and a bunch of other things. And hey, so look, they are able to get pizzas out from different cafeterias, different get dominoes and things like that. I would have said that they aren't gourmet because the idea is to be able to get these out at like big lunch hours or whatever. They are actually piloting at Moto Pizza as well, which I guess is like one of the hottest pizza chains in uh, Seattle in terms of a well-known chef. Incredible idea. Network. Yeah. The thing yeah. is, it's look, just because you use like a gas grill, versus like sticks and wood or whatever and to create the like fire or whatnot for cooking between using like cooking utensils and other gadgets or whatever to make things easier that doesn't take away the beauty of cooking nor does it take away the like artistry or whatever in it it's just tools at the end of the day that you're throwing at it and for some of these pizza shops and whatnot especially i don't want to impinge on the artistry of domino's pizzas in terms of how i mean, the care and love that goes into each Domino's pizza or whatnot. But it's like the, the, to be able to get this stuff out, especially with so many labor shortages at this point and still be productive in terms of these things will really take a big step and big revolution for that. So Picnic Robotics, which combines robotics and AI, is one particular company that makes a big step towards that. And it's a challenging area to operate in, but it's an important one. And actually, I'm going to quickly make this plug too, because I think this is something that a lot of people ask questions about. What about workers and wages? It's what yeah. about workers and wages for this. Mm -hmm. And my typical answer for this is in practicality, like in theory, you could see how it would affect them negatively. In practicality, mm -hmm. the industry already has way more job openings than people willing to apply and jump into them. And for mm -hmm. the most part, from what I've seen this actually deployed, look, the reason why pizza shops are not paying their workers more is not because they're just big evil corporations or groups or whatnot. It's because their margins are already low. The yeah. amount that they can actually make per pizza is quite low. If they raise their prices in order to pay their people more, suddenly people buy other pizzas and suddenly they don't mm -hmm. have anything to pay their workers and they go out of business. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. 
So if you had a technology that made a single worker that you were using 10x as productive and you suddenly became much more profitable because of it, you'd be willing to raise that worker's wages. It's like it's not actually that hard of a mental model to go through where if you just put yourself in the position of that like pizza shop owner or whatever, no, you'd be willing to pay more. Will you be willing to pay all the way up to the amount you're making? Probably not, but you would be actually willing to pay more for that same worker, especially if they're mm. good. So yeah, quality over quantity, right? It's what these sorts of technologies enable, because at the end of the day, you can only move so fast with your hands or whatnot. But someone mm -hmm. who's just really good at managing the process, figuring it out, getting ahead of it, that sort of upskills the job that's required in mm -hmm. terms of it. And that basically makes it a higher skill job. James, did anyone come up with a personal robot that attaches to your car wherever you go? It walks around and makes you a sandwich on the go wherever you need it at home, does the dishes, does the bed, does everything, <laughs> washes the car. Is there anyone that's come up with such an idea yet? And do you see it being a thing in the future? I have been pitched a Rosie the Robot before, actually more than once at this point, from the Jetsons. Yeah. The Jetsons, they oh, got yeah, 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 robot, yeah. like yeah. house-made person yes, thing, yes, yes. robot thing that runs around. I thought so that was pitched, so cool. Yeah, I've been pitched that idea more than once. Now, the challenge yeah. is, if you actually look up that pizza robot I mentioned, it does not look like a human. It looks like a box or a box line oh. thing that basically pops yeah. out pizzas. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason why Rosie the robot's kind of far away, unfortunately. Uh, but our, as human beings, we can move things around, manipulate them. Like I'm holding up something and just moving it around and manipulating it without crushing it, without accidentally dropping it, whatever. That's pretty easy for us. But we have millions of years of evolution behind us, as well as from childhood like crawling around and figuring out how mm. to like use our hands and use our bodies and do mm. all these dexterous things. That mm -hmm. is not the native domain of a robot. Will we get there? Sure, at some point. But in terms of right now, it's not the native domain of robots. And it's a pretty hard area to actually throw AI at just because you have to have the right data. Mm. You have to have the right sort of learning in terms of it. There are techniques that you can throw against it, like reinforcement learning and simulated mm -hmm. data. But it's just not quite good enough especially mm -hmm. in real-world circumstances. If ChatGPT screws something up, okay, whatever, you just rerun it, right? If your Rosie the Robot screws something up and accidentally kills everyone in the household instead of cleaning something, it's, that would be a bad thing, right? <laughs> it's, we can't kind of quite reset that. and go. It, it's just it's an extreme example, obviously. But it's just real-world circumstances and physical world things and exceptions are mu a much bigger deal than digital and this is the same mm -hmm. reason why like self-driving cars which by the way is a much easier problem i was just gonna than ask Rosie that. the robot this is the reason yeah. why they're they're like still so it's still so hard to roll them out right because 80 20 yeah. you can get you to, a self-driving car can get you to the grocery store probably better than most drivers out there it's yes. just that there's going yes. to be Agreed. exception yeah, there's just going to be exceptions and cases where it gets stuck, it does the wrong thing, whatever, that at least within a physical environment become unacceptable. So that's the challenge with a lot of these physical mm -hmm. environment or AI and robotics. It takes a lot of guts to invest in something like that. 
because the risk factor is so high. It's amazing how Elon Musk got support for his vehicle. It's a new domain. Yeah. He, that's the thing. He went out there and just started doing it and yeah. no one ended up stopping it. And that's partially how he got so far with it. And the funny irony is, even though, look, I have quite a few friends in the self-driving, it's like self-driving car, automated driving space. A lot of them, especially at some of the other companies, rag a lot on Tesla in terms of just going out there and being cowboy in terms of doing it. But this is partially how they ended up with such a robust data set and started figuring out a lot of the problems, right? Um, now, is it the most responsible way to go about it in terms of basically offloading some of the problems to your customers? Probably not. But as far as being able to get ahead and be able to push a lot of these things forward, you have to give some props to that, again, with some of the caveats as well. Do you foresee self-driving cars being available anytime soon? I think I do. And again, like I know other folks who disagree with me on this, even folks who work mm -hmm. in the industry and where it would actually be nice if, you know, their industry came to something within say five years versus 10 years or something. But I think the thing is, especially for like taxi services or other things within constrained environments, I think we're close because the thing mm -hmm. is, it's the problem that I mentioned is exceptions. Like when the robot or whatever encounters something that it doesn't, or the AI encounters something that it didn't expect before and it doesn't know how to handle, and we don't know how we'll handle it, that's actually a pretty big risk. But if you're just mm -hmm. traveling along most of the same roads, most of the same routes, for most of the same things, everyone mm -hmm. gets off of an school. Sorry, James. It has an emergency uh, system built into sure. it that is rigorously tested, then the risk level is low. Totally. But the other thing too, is just, if we just have the thing run the most common routes that we know about, that we've seen how it does, yeah. that we've had thousands of hours of trying it or whatever, that's a pretty low risk at that point. And at that point, I think people can be pretty comfortable with them rolling out. In San Francisco, you already do have those robo taxis. Again, there's always a risk tolerance thing in terms of, is it a good is it a good enough thing in terms of being able to be on public streets and stuff and you've had people push back on it by throwing cones on them i don't know if you've heard some of the news stuff on it it's like people are creating exceptions for them by going up to them and tossing traffic cones onto the hood of the cars on the self-driving cars and obviously they stop at that point and stuff but yeah yeah at least san francisco is already testing that out and as a whole it cool. seems like a pretty reasonable reasonable pilot of it yeah that'll be incredible imagine how about this idea the self-driving car actually has the pizza ovens built in so it as it's driving around making pizzas once one's one's ready it delivers it goes to another one completely on the road totally that was the dream yeah. of a startup that felt pretty just called a car <laughs> yeah, this was basically Zoom's, so Z-U-M-E, Zoom's entire thing. Maybe for them, it's just a little before it's time. They were trying to pilot that, this idea about the pizza. Yeah, the problem is they didn't really have the self-driving car and they didn't really have the robot. Yeah, you need that first. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, right? need both. And they didn't really have <laughs> either, both, which was yeah. their trouble. Yeah, that's a good dream. And that's why I appreciate you, James, because... Being an optimist in tech, 
is very important for our future because you will change the way we live. And that's the idea. And hey, look, yeah. we have a lot of big problems that are ahead of us. And I yeah. personally think that we will have a lot of these technologies be able to help us solve them. Yeah, no, it's great. James, I appreciate you for coming on the show today. It was wonderful speaking to you th about this stuff. It, it excites me. I'm enthusiastic whenever I see something launch, and I'm grateful to be in this position where I can have people like yourself, innovators like yourself on the show and meet them personally, virtually, and pick their brain and see what's going on because uh, it's just it's phenomenal what's happening in the world so quickly. Absolutely. Maybe more quickly now than any other point in history yeah. since the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, it's great. Good stuff. All right. Thank you, James. Audience, thank you for joining us once again. James' information will be in the show notes. Get in touch and take a look at what he's doing, what they're involved in, and appreciate you guys. And we'll see you next time.